What is the kingdom of God? Brother Jason made more than a few references to the kingdom of God this morning. All of us have in our minds an answer to this question, perhaps not a complete and well-formulated answer, admittedly, but when you hear the phrase, the kingdom of God, something comes into your mind. And I could just as easily ask the following, where is the kingdom of God? How about when is the kingdom of God? Or... Who exactly constitutes the kingdom of God? How about this one? What is the kingdom of heaven that the gospel writer Matthew is talking about in Matthew chapter 13? Is it the same as or different from the kingdom of God? And if you're saying to yourself, well, I don't really know if I know what the kingdom of God is, then you're in good company, I think. In Acts chapter 1, after Jesus had risen from the dead and had spent several weeks with his disciples teaching them, he's ready to ascend to the right hand of the Father, and his disciples ask him, verse 6, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? So take heart, friends. At that time, in the presence of the risen Christ, they didn't know either. Let's try this. Certainly, Jesus spoke at length about the kingdom. Did the Apostle Paul, or the Apostle Peter, James, or John? Or was the kingdom of God something in the forefront of Jesus' mind, but relegated to the apostles' back burner? The kingdom, whatever it is, will be the subject of this next series of sermons from the Gospel according to Matthew, as Pastor Scott and I trek our way through Matthew chapter 13. We are now entering our third section of Matthew's Gospel. Pastor Scott reminded you a couple of weeks ago that Matthew's Gospel begins with four chapters of introduction and then ends with the Great Commission. It has five sections in between of long discourse followed by narrative. And Pastor Scott finished off Matthew chapter 12, which is the second section of Matthew last time, which puts me at the front end of this third section Matthew, at the beginning of Matthew chapter 13, which is a chapter full of Jesus' parables about the kingdom of heaven. Before we dive into those parables, I felt like I just needed to ask you some of those questions a moment ago. Because the reality is this. There are at least a few different perspectives on what the Bible means by the phrase, the kingdom of God. Or the kingdom of heaven. They're the same thing, by the way. The phrase, the kingdom of heaven, was quite common in the Jewish literature of Jesus' day. And so the gospel writer Matthew puts this phrase on the lips of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, to ensure that his Jewish audience, that is, Matthew's Jewish audience, would have a correct view of what the messianic kingdom was really, truly Like, one thing that is interesting to note this morning 
is that as Pastor Scott and I have been preaching through Matthew, it's not as if this motif of the kingdom simply sneaks up on us here in Matthew chapter 13. In fact, prior to chapter 13, Matthew has mentioned the kingdom on a few occasions. Let me give you a few instances. Matthew 4, he says, Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and lived in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, and from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's Matthew chapter 4. John the Baptist had previously proclaimed the same thing. Matthew 5, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, Jesus says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, Jesus again says, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 7, Jesus again says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 8, this is an interesting one. Jesus says, Many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, verse 12, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Two kingdoms mentioned in Matthew chapter 8. Bless you. Matthew 11 says, Jesus says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. And the last one we saw in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What's the point? The point is this. With these statements and the many more to come, it should be clear to us that the Lord Jesus has at the forefront of his mind during his ministry the kingdom of God. So my takeaway from this fact is this, that we who have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, we should be willing to work and think about what it is, where it is, when it is, and who it is. Brothers and sisters, this is not a trivial undertaking for multiple reasons. First, this is not a trivial undertaking because the Bible is not a systematic theology textbook. What I mean is this. In order to try and figure out what the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is, we have to piece these things together. Second, this is not a trivial undertaking because, again, frankly, so many have preconceived notions about the answers to these fundamental questions. Sometimes these preconceived notions are arrived at through careful study. But many times, these preconceived notions are merely learned and they need to be challenged. Finally, This study of the kingdom of God is not a trivial undertaking because whatever or whenever or whoever or wherever you decide it is, listen, this is exactly what Brother Jason said this morning, 
It has profound implications for how you live. When you walk out those doors in the back, your convictions about what the kingdom of God is will dictate your actions in this world, in your community, in your church, and even in your family. So this kind of study is not for the faint of heart. But I know you, and I know that it is your heart's desire to know and to understand God's inspired, infallible word, and more than that, to live it out, whatever it means. So we're going to do that together, amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's dive into the text. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And large crowds gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd was standing on the beach. Verse 3. And he spoke many things to them in parables. And I'm going to stop there for a moment. Now the first thing we should do when we get to the middle of verse 3 is we should ask ourselves, why? Why does Jesus now, here in Matthew chapter 13, why does Jesus begin to speak to the crowds in parables? And the answer to that question is in the text. But we have to skip down a bit to see it. And we need to see it. Because this is a change from what Jesus has been doing up until this time in his ministry. Is it not? I mean, we've been through the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. We've been through the Apostolic Discourse in chapter 10. We've been through the narrative sections, the first two of them at least. And you can go back and read those sections for yourself. And you will find Jesus speaking to the crowds and to his disciples in a straightforward fashion. No real perplexing parables to be found there. But here in Matthew chapter 13, now, as Jesus' ministry is progressing, Matthew records for us that Jesus begins to speak in parables, in pithy, fictional stories that serve to illustrate a point. That's what a parable is. One dictionary describes a parable as, quote, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, end quote. And here's an interesting thing. Much of the time, parables are used to help the listener to understand. In fact, I've heard sermons to this effect. That is, the the argument is made that Jesus uses parables during his ministry to help fishermen and carpenters to really understand what he was saying. To really understand what he was teaching about the kingdom of God. Now, we have to ask ourselves this morning, is that true? Let's see together, please, if in your Bible, drop down to verse 10 in Matthew 13. Many of you probably have a heading there at verse 10 that reads something like, The Purpose of the Parables. So after Jesus tells the crowd the parable of the sower, which we will return to in just a few moments, we read this, beginning in verse 10. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Verse 11. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because they are uneducated fishermen and carpenters and... No? 
But that, I must be reading from the Message Bible. Sorry about that. Let's try it again. Verse 10. The disciples came and said to Jesus, Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered and said to them, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Verse 14, And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes, lest they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. Verse 16, But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Is this saying what you think it's saying? Is Jesus saying that the reason that he speaks to the crowds in parables is because he doesn't want them to understand what he calls in verse 11 the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven? Is that really what Jesus is saying here? I submit to you this is exactly what Jesus is saying. In fact, and this is even more amazing, Jesus tells his disciples that the statement from Isaiah chapter 6, you can see it there in all caps maybe in verses 14 and 15. Jesus says to his disciples that what God says to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, that the Israelites would ignore Isaiah in Isaiah's day. Look at it, verse 14. In Jesus' day, in Jesus' generation, that prophecy from Isaiah 6 would also be fulfilled in them. Mark's gospel is even more clear on this. You don't have to go there, but please hear Mark 4, beginning in verse 11. And Jesus said to his disciples, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom, but to those who are without, everything comes in parables. Verse 12, so that, this is called a hina clause in the Greek. It denotes purpose and intent. Jesus says, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand, lest they return and be forgiven. Again, the quotation from Isaiah chapter 6. In short, and in the interest of time, here is what Jesus is saying to his disciples here in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus is saying, I'm going to talk to these people, these Israelite crowds. They will not hear me, just as the Israelites in Isaiah's day could not hear him. These people that I'm speaking to, they will not understand me, just as the Israelites in Isaiah's day could not understand Isaiah. Jesus says, I'm going to speak in parables to them. 
them to essentially guarantee that they won't hear me and they won't understand me and because they won't understand what I'm saying and because they won't understand the mysteries of my kingdom that they will be hidden from them, they will become increasingly agitated with me and instead of their repenting of their hardness of heart because they are so dull, their agitation, the frustration of these Israelites to whom I'm speaking, Jesus says, their agitation will lead to them calling out for my blood. Jesus speaks to these Jews in parables so that their lack of understanding of the parables will result in his death at their hands. Look at it. Verse 11, at the end. To them, the crowds to whom he's speaking, to them it has not been given. Verse 13, therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing with one set of eyes, they do not see. And while hearing with one set of ears, they do not hear, nor do they understand. You see, these Israelites of Jesus' day, they don't have the right kind of eyes, nor do they have the right kind of ears, nor do they have the right kind of mind to understand because it takes a certain kind of ear, a certain kind of eye, a certain kind of mind to understand the mysteries of the kingdom. And I'm going to come back to this at the end. But, notice what Jesus says to his disciples. Look with me at verse 16. Jesus says, But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you, that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and did not see it. And to hear what you hear. Did not hear it. Now, listen, please. It's true that Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And Matthew is recording this private dialogue as he remembered it occurring. And Matthew's writing to a first century Jewish audience for sure. We have said it before. Matthew is the gospel to the Jews. But here's a question for you. Please listen. When Matthew is writing his gospel account, who is he writing for? If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, then he is writing for you. Do you see that this blessing is for you, Christian? You, because you've been given a certain kind of eye, a certain kind of ear. You can see and hear and understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. You can see and hear and understand things that many prophets and righteous men desired to see, but they couldn't because they lived before the Son of God took on human flesh and came to this earth. You can see and hear and understand things that Abel and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and David, things they did not have the privilege of seeing or understanding 
while they lived. These are the glories of the new covenant, brothers and sisters. We can see what they could not see. So Jesus, in his ministry, he transitions to speaking in parables. Listen, to conceal, to conceal the mysteries of his kingdom from the Jewish crowds, but to reveal, to reveal these mysteries to his disciples. Parables conceal and they reveal. And his speaking in parables essentially guarantees his substitutionary death on the cross at Calvary. With me? Let's move on to this first parable, the parable of the sower. Beginning in verse 3. And he, Jesus, spoke many things to them, the crowd, in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. And others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. And others fell among the thorns. And the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and were yielding a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears to hear... Let him hear. Now, this is the easiest part of the sermon because I don't have to interpret this parable for you, disciples of Jesus, that you are because Jesus himself provides the interpretation in verses 18 and following. But before we go there to the interpretation, please let me point one thing out to you. From Mark's account of this same parable, Mark records Jesus as saying the following. Right before he provides the interpretation of the parable, Mark 4, verse 13. And he, Jesus, said to them, his disciples, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? So even though Jesus does, in fact, give us the interpretation of the parable of the sower here, we ought not rest too easily, because Jesus, in this gentle rebuke of his disciples, Jesus is saying two things, I believe. First, Jesus is providing his disciples with a strategy for the interpretations of the, or the interpretation of the parables of the kingdom. And he's stressing the importance of this first parable, the parable of the sower. The strategy is this. Jesus tells a simple, earthly story derived from everyday life, and he will derive from that simple, earthly story a simple, yet profound conclusion, maybe two, about the kingdom of God. This is the strategy. This is the pattern. Second, this first parable, the parable of the sower, will establish a couple foundational principles about the kingdom of God that must be maintained as we move through the rest of the kingdom parables. So let's have these in mind. On to the interpretation. Beginning in verse 18. 
Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, and the worry of the world, and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. So here, Jesus is taking a very common picture of how a farmer in his day would set out to sow some seed, especially spreading it with his hands. And of course, not all the seed ends up exactly where he wants them to go onto the tilled and fertile ground. But occasionally, some of this very valuable seed ends up in places that are not amenable to thriving and producing fruit. And Jesus is using this parable, this simple illustration, to teach his disciples some things about his kingdom. So what ought we to see here from this parable? First, we need to make sure we understand what is being sown. What the seed is that is to be spread as part of the kingdom that the Lord is telling us about. And that seed is, verse 19, the word of the kingdom. One commentator says this, This is the good seed which every sower sent by Jesus Christ will be careful to sow. Not the chaff of metaphysical speculations, of human traditions uh, and empty notions, nor the light corn of mere moral doctrines, much less the tares of superstitious injunctions, but the solid and well-bodied grain of the essential truths of the gospel of Christ. Christ. I know this is why you are here. It is surely not for the guitar playing. The seed is not the rock concert. The seed is not the diamond-plated youth room. The seed is not so many of the other things that our consumer-driven culture is clamoring for. The primary sower is Jesus, who brings the true word of the kingdom. And the apostles and the other writers of Scripture are the undersowers, if you will, providing us with this word of the kingdom right here. And we, you and I, are also undersowers whenever we proclaim the word of the kingdom to anyone, anywhere. And the primary sower, Jesus himself, and the apostles, and we undersowers, sow the word of the kingdom. That is it. And if we don't understand this parable, how, we, how will we understand any of the other parables? Think about this for a moment. One of the first things that the good doctor, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, did when he became the pastor of Westminster Chapel in London 
was to nail the pulpit to the floor of the stage. That, my friends, as Drax the Destroyer would say, that is a metaphor. And that was for Tim Pfeiffer, even though he's not in there. Now let's move on to the interpretation. It should be clear to all of us that there are four kinds of soil in this parable. First, we have the hard soil in verses 4 and 19. 4 and 19. Verse 4. As the sower sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Verse 19 provides the interpretation. Jesus says, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The road here is what we refer to sometimes as the beaten path. For example, in the last chapter, Matthew chapter 12, verse 1, we saw Jesus and his disciples walking through the grain fields, it says. They were most likely walking on a beaten path that ran between the sections of a field. And these beaten paths were literally and frankly beaten down, hardened by foot traffic, such that a wayward seed thrown by the sower could not burrow its way down into the dirt. Thus, lying on top of the path, such a seed would have inevitably been, what does Jesus say, taken and eaten by the birds. That beaten path... That hard soil represents the hardened heart. There is no chance that the seed of the good word of the gospel is going to penetrate such a heart. This hardness of heart is manifest in many ways. Anger. Arguing. Reading or writing books with titles like, God is not great, how religion poisons everything. Or Facebook posts that portend to destroy the Christian religion once and for all. And when that seed of the good word cannot penetrate, it's just lying there. Like the sower's grain seed pulled from his sack, that good word of the gospel of the kingdom, it's taken by the evil one, Jesus says. Second, we have the rocky soil in verses 5 and 6. And verses 20 and 21. Verse 5. And other seeds fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. Verses 20 and 21 provide the interpretation. Jesus says, And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises, because of the word immediately he falls away these rocky places to which Jesus is referring are the places in the field where first century plows were ineffective let's say that a farmer and his plow team could turn over the dirt down about six inches or so 
But at six and a half inches down, there was a rock that the farmer didn't even know was there. It turns out that limestone is very common in the fields of Galilee and Judea. And so the dirt near the surface is plowed, it's turned over, and the seed gets down into that dirt just a little bit, but immediately beneath that seed, nothing but rock. And no place, listen, no place for the root to penetrate and to thrive. So as the plant grows, because it cannot grow down... Because its roots cannot penetrate down into the soil, it grows upward and quickly. This quick upward growth is bad news, friends, for the longevity of that plant. And the farmer... This is so important. The farmer might be thinking to himself, this is the greatest result I've ever seen. But it turns out that such immediate results are often harbingers of bad news and no yield at all. Those of us who have been in church a long time know the rocky soil types. Absolutely on fire for six months, maybe a year, maybe even two years. Often because the message of the gospel was perceived, rightly I would add. The gospel is perceived as a message of rescue and hope in a time of great need. This is why the New Testament, over and over again, promises glory Only to those who persevere. And look how Jesus characterizes the falling away. Verse 21. Jesus says that affliction or persecution arises because of the word. Because of the seed itself that was scattered. Brothers and sisters, let us pray now. Because unless God brings us another awakening... Affliction and persecution are coming because of this word. Do I believe in the perseverance of the saints by God's sanctifying and preserving grace? You bet I do. But that theology does not preclude me from praying for myself and for all of you that we might persevere to the end. And see Jesus face to face. May God himself grant us this persevering grace. Third, we have the thorny soil in verses 7 and 22. Verse 7. And other seeds fell among the thorns. And the thorns came up and choked them out. Verse 22, with the interpretation, Jesus says, And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, and the worry of the world, and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Now, we all know about weeds, don't we? I know Suzanne knows about weeds in her garden. Yes? They're a result of the Genesis 3 curse. 
Thorns and weeds, this is important, thorns and weeds are the most effective plants at extracting from the soil everything that the good plants need to thrive. Weeds are bullies. When they grow up, their big leaves block out the sun from getting to the good plants. As far as the weeds and the thorns and the thistles are concerned, this garden ain't big enough for the both of us, they would say. Here we have a similar result to the one we just saw with the rocky soil. This person hears the word, Jesus says, verse 22, he hears or she hears the word. They might even, intellectually speaking, know that it's good and true. But the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word of the kingdom. These things, the good plants and the thorns and the thistles cannot coexist. And no fruit is born here in this soil. And we've seen this before, have we not? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns his hearers about both anxiety and money. And these two things are actually often connected, are they not? So for the rocky soil, it was affliction and persecution because of the word that causes a person to fall away. And here for the thorny soil, it is the worries of the world and wealth that cause a person to be of no value to the kingdom. And in all three of these cases, with these first three kinds of soil, there is nothing, there is no fruit that lasts. These last two soils, these are not true believers eking into the eternal kingdom by the skin of their teeth. These are apostates who do not persevere. These are unbelievers who cannot see past the worries or the wealth, the calls by Jesus, listen, to abandon everything for Him. These are the ones who do not bear fruit and who will be condemned on the last day. And we who believe, listen, we we should see this parable. We should see these soils and their unfruitfulness as warnings. Pardon the expression. Spurs in our backsides that should cause us, once again this morning, to run to the Savior, to examine ourselves, to make our calling and election sure, says one apostle, to beg our God to carry us to the end, that we might yield a crop 30-fold, 60-fold, even a 100-fold, for the glory of Jesus Christ and His kingdom. I hope you are not beyond begging for God's grace. We should beg God that these seeds of the glorious gospel of grace, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, crucified and resurrected and ascended for sinners like me and you, that by His shed precious blood we might be washed, we might be sanctified, we might be justified before Him, a holy and righteous God, who will not sweep even one sin beneath the corner of the cosmic carpet, but will hold every man and woman accountable. We should beg God that these 
precious seeds of the gospel of the kingdom would take root in our hearts and by His Spirit breed fruit to the glory of the grace of the Son of God because, listen, only those who bear fruit of the Spirit will be able to stand before Him on that last great day. You might be asking yourself, am I the good soil? Am I the kind of soil that produces fruit for the kingdom in abundance? These are good questions. Let me say this. As I finish up here this morning, I want to revisit the topic that I left on the table a little bit ago. I said that only those who have a certain kind of eye, a certain kind of ear, a certain kind of mind can understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And I'm pretty sure that none of you will be surprised that the answer to this is that a person must have spiritual eyes. They must have spiritual ears. They must have a spiritual mind to understand these mysteries. Jesus himself told the Jewish religious leader Nicodemus, Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, that unless one is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. And see, this fact puts to rest all the bad interpretations of this parable, doesn't it? I mean, what kind of fruit is Jesus talking about when he is talking about the 30-fold, the 60-fold, the 100-fold? He's talking about spiritual fruit, which can only be produced in a sinner by the Spirit of God. Of course, we could go to the obvious place in the New Testament. None of you would be surprised if I went right now to Galatians chapter 5. But just to give you another perspective on this, how about, you don't have to go there, just listen, Romans chapter 14. The Apostle Paul writes this about the kingdom of God. Romans 14 verse 17. If you'd like to look it up later, Paul writes, The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. But righteousness and peace and joy... Can you finish it? Can you finish the verse? The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Look with me at verse 12 of Matthew chapter 13 as we wrap this up this morning. Matthew chapter 13, verse 12, Jesus says, Whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. What does this mean? It means that whoever has the Holy Spirit of God and who has received a new spiritual regenerated heart with new spiritual eyes and new spiritual ears will be given spiritual understanding. He or she will be able to see and to enter into the kingdom of God. But but whoever does not have the Holy Spirit, whoever does not have a new regenerated heart, even what they have... Even the very words of the Messiah himself will be taken away from them. Snatched away, Jesus says. 
snatched away by the evil one. May God grant to everyone within the sound of my voice, the eyes, the ears, the mind, the new heart that is needed to see and enter the kingdom of God. George Whitfield was a great evangelist who traveled up and down the eastern seacoast, preaching in the 1740s, the 1750s, and even into the 1760s. And he had a sermon that he trumpeted all over this nation in the Great Awakening in the early colonies. It was on the nature and the necessity of the new birth. More people, I don't know if you know this or not, but more people saw George Whitfield preach than ever saw George Washington. And one day a woman came up to him and said, Mr. Whitfield, why do you keep saying to us you must be born again? To which Whitfield replied, Because, dear woman, you must be born again. And I say the same to you. You must be born again. Then and only then will the kingdom of God be available to you. To be seen, to be understood, and to be entered. Let's pray. We pray, God the Holy Spirit, Do the work that only you can do. Plow the soil of our hearts as only you can do. Give us conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment as only you can do. Take this mess of a message and use it to bring glory and honor to Jesus, the Son of God, as only you can do. Cause your people to bear your fruit for the furthering of the kingdom of God. Through the good seed of the gospel, the blessed word of the kingdom, as only you can do. Our Father in heaven, magnified be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And we ask these things in the name of our Savior and Lord and King. Jesus the Christ. Amen.